0: Good evening. This is attorney Vincent Davis. You're on the Divorce and Family Law Talk radio show. I'm on this evening with myself and attorney Raj Matani. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions, we've got answers. Family law experts answer questions, answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, etc. Good evening. This is Attorney Vincent Davis, and I'm broadcasting live from our Arcadia office this evening. And uh, let's see if our co-host, Attorney Raj Matani, is with us. Raj, are you there this evening? Hey,
1: Vince. How are you?
0: Doing good. How are you doing?
1: Doing great. I've been slammed uh, with client meetings and two court appearances today, but uh, I'm going to bring some energy to the show and answer some questions for our our, uh, callers and uh, people who've messaged us since our last show and hopefully give people some useful advice.
0: Okay, but before we start on those questions... Sure. What's going on with our Hollywood couple, uh, <laughs> Jack Sparrow?
1: They, uh, you know, I think there's a thing: it's uh, no news is good news. So uh, there has been no, there have been no tabloid reports. There have been no uh, uh, published progress since then. I think our last update, we were, or it had been reported that you know the attorneys are meeting. There's a settlement offer on the table. And uh, I think they pushed off the DV hearing um, so that they could engage in that negotiation. So a lot of family law cases, uh, you know, some of the art is in in seeing where how problems can be solved, how it can be kept out of the public eye, how uh, sort of costs and exposure can be minimized. And uh, it looks like they're heading towards settlement.
0: Very good. Any other recent news, uh, Hollywood news about? Couples getting divorced? Uh, there's something...
1: Nothing's caught my radar recently, um, but I'm sure, <laughs> The one thing that I'm sure might be happening soon is, um, uh, you know, we just got through free agency season in, in a few professional sports, and, uh, you know, Vince, you and I dabble in that area with a couple of our clients as well, a uh, few celebrity clients, a few professional athletes, and, uh, you know, the money that was reported is far and expansive, so I'm, I'm sure some people might find this as an opportunity to go in for modifications or start requesting support, so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if those, if those storylines start to pop up.
0: Okay, let's get right to our question. Uh, let me pull it up on the screen here. Do you have a copy of the questions, Raj? Yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> I I do. I, uh, you know, just as a as a backup, Vince, uh, I like to keep a uh, keep a spare copy ready. But uh, the first question this week, and uh, to let all of our callers, everyone listening, know, uh, you can call in, call into the show, or call into our offices, and uh, if you have a question that we could possibly answer on the show, uh, we'll be happy to to address it, and we can do that live or or the following week, but. Uh, Our first question is, uh, the caller asks, I've been divorced from my wife for the last two years. We have a daughter and a son. Our children are both working for my company. I just got news that my wife has been taking money out of my daughter's bank account for her personal use. What can I do about this?
0: What do you think he can do about it at this point in time?
1: Uh, Well, like a lot of our questions, um, you know, they seem simple on the surface, but there's a few, few issues beneath. The first thing that catches my eye, he says that his children are working for his company. Um, so I'm curious, I'd be curious to find out if the children are, you know, above the age of 18 or below the age of 18. If they're above the age of 18, the answer is pretty simple. You know, they're adults, they're in charge of their own finances and whatever it might be. And, um, you know, if, if the daughter wants to allow the mother to have access to her account and take that money out, then that's, that's what the arrangement between the two of them is and the father can't really do much. Um, but if it's the alternative situation where uh, the children are under the age of 18 and the father's giving them sort of a summer job and sets them up with a bank account where that paycheck gets deposited for the purposes of personal expenditure, Um, if he has evidence uh, showing that his wife is doing this, it could be grounds for either, uh, you know, for modifying child support, modifying spousal support, or maybe even changing custody. So, um, you know, the right avenue here probably would be, uh, well, the first would be to bring up the issue and tell her not to do it. And then secondly, if that gets nowhere, I would file a motion immediately uh, seeking modification for, um, all of the previously mentioned issues, or even more specifically for the mother not to have access to that account.
0: What are now, your thoughts, then? I, I didn't take the question. I, di- I didn't think that these folks were married. Is that how you, t- or these folks were going through a divorce. Is that how you took the question?
1: Well, yeah, I, I took it from the uh, the first line. She, he says he's been divorced from his wife for the last two
0: years. So
1: um, I would suspect that issues of child support, spouse support, custody were either decided via judgment or or might still be pending um, if they have an open case. But, you know, um, even after divorce, you know, parties can come back on any of those issues and seek a modification. Uh, the ground for how you prove those changes, you know, increases, but uh, sort of what's written in stone is not necessarily always written in stone and uh, can be modified based on changed circumstances uh, or new evidence. So um, I think there's there, there are avenues here to resolve this through the court.
0: I think you gave good advice with respect to, you know, perhaps uh, limiting... The wife's uh, access to these um, funds, and also perhaps moving for that uh, request for order—you know—to change custody, legal custody for sure, and perhaps yeah. even physical custody. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, this issue is it seems like it's obvious enough that. Um, you know, they could take the mother off uh, as a signer off of the daughter's account. There, there are direct ways to alleviate this issue, but if none of those seem to be working or uh, don't actually solve the problem, then you know, the next option is court.
0: Okay. Very good advice. Very good advice, Raj. Okay, the second question that we have this evening is... I got married to my wife 17 years ago. My wife does not work. She has been supported by my working business. We have been having a difficult marriage lately. I am considering divorcing her. Before I move forward with the divorce proceedings, I want, I want to file a post-nuptial agreement. Is this possible? What say you? You
1: hey, know, this isn't a... A very interesting question, Vince. I think we went over this issue of prenuptial and postnuptial agreements a few weeks ago. And if I remember correctly, I haven't refreshed my recollection on, on the issue, but if I remember correctly, you know, the critical part in these prenuptial and postnuptial agreements are how they are executed. So um, the steps that this person might want to take are to make sure that properly drafted, um, you know, says all the things that he wanted to say, that he presents it to his wife, um, and gives her the right opportunities to review it, Have an independent attorney review it, um, and then, uh, when both of them sign it to make sure it's notarized and properly documented. If all of those things are in place and you follow with the statute, um, you know, you could have an appropriate postnuptial agreement, uh, and then, if you end up getting divorced, it it, it could be valid and enforceable. Um, the part that intrigues me here is that it's been so long since it's been a long time that they've been married. It's been seventeen years, so um, that may become a factor. But uh, I think that can be alleviated in the way that the postnuptial agreement is drafted, to you know sort of have the wife sign away all the acknowledgments that none of this was done under duress or um, compulsion on any level, but uh, there is a way to execute this post-nuptial agreement, and the best way would be to make sure that an attorney does it uh, and make sure that it's properly drafted and properly um, submitted and executed to make sure that it's enforceable.
0: Right. I agree with you, Raj. His hardest probably um, hump to get over is going to be Getting his wife to sign a postnuptial agreement after 17 <laughs> yes. years of marriage. Well, um, after
1: you and I you know. got lectured by that uh, caller last week about not uh, not doing as we preach, uh, I you know that's always the hardest part, right? Is, is getting the other party to sign.
0: So, did you uh, make some changes in your life after that lecture? Did you uh, get your post or nope. your prenuptial agreement? <laughs>
1: <laughs> nope. Uh, i'm i'm uh, uh, remaining blissfully ignorant and uh, uh, optimistic and you know uh, should should things change they, they change but i'm i'm i guess i'm going to take that risk
0: very good very good i want to tell our call our listeners if you want to call in and ask a specific question you can give us a call at 646 668 8791 That's 646-668-8791. Okay, Raj, the next question that we have is, I have a 16-year-old daughter who has been working for three years. She works for different agencies here in Los Angeles. If I get divorced from my husband, would the amount he pays in child support be connected to my daughter's income?
1: Wow. Wow, that's a very loaded question um, with a lot of intricacies um, that I actually haven't run across before, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, it would be my instinct that the amount of money that a child earns would have no impact on child support. Um, the purpose of child support is for the paying party, or for either party, to assure that a child has the same standard of living at both parents' places. So, you know, this child isn't independent, at least I can't see that in the question, this child isn't fully independent, isn't fully supporting herself, so um, whatever considerations are made for child support will be, in my opinion, exclusively based on the earnings and incomes and uh, you know living situations of the parent and not the child um, but i don't know Vince, i mean have you run into this kind of issue before or how would you react? I
0: have not run into I have not run into this situation before, but i think um, that you might be right, however, I think that a an amount can be an argument can be made. To use the num the number that the income, you know, of the child uh, in the child support calculation.
1: You, you know, I, I'm thinking about it more, Vince. And the way that this, the way that that might, issue might become more significant is, um, you know, in in every support proceeding or every financial issue, the there's a uh, a local rules for disclosures of, of documents, but there's also a very significant form uh, for our listeners out there called the Income and Expense Declaration. And, you know, this lists out what each party's income is, how they where it comes from, and you know, how it correlates to their expense. On, I think the second page of it, there's a box that lists whether, you know, who lives with you and whether any of those people are bringing in money. Uh, you know, is this child is working, bringing in some money, and that money is going towards support of the family, Um, I think it would be a useful argument to show that, you know, the family is being partially supported by this child and that, um, you know, that factor should be taken into consideration when uh, making any any order for support. So it would be a useful point to bring up. How the court would rule on it um, would would be very interesting to see.
0: I think that whole point about the income and expense, you know, is going to play into uh, when you list the child's income and apply into the support uh, calculation.
1: Yeah, because I mean, cause there, there could be an argument made that you know, if the child is contributing to one of the households, that. Um, you know, if the support order is really low, or if one of the parents is arguing for for a higher number, you know, you can make the argument that the whole family's subsistence or lifestyle is based partially on this child, and therefore the actual support number should be lower, so it doesn't impact the child negatively.
0: How would the uh, child be impacted negatively?
1: Well, I think the court would want to take some caution to make sure that you know, this child is working, they're underage, and that, you know, wanting to protect that everything that they earn goes for their personal needs and and um, their situation, as opposed to the parents continuing to uh, rely on this child for their standard of living. So, uh, you know, I think the court would take some great caution to assure that, uh, you know, neither parent, you know, sees this child as, as a potential cash cow or, you know, substitution for either party's income.
0: Okay. Interesting. Although I think some arguments can be made to the contrary.
1: So, and, and that's why it, it, it would kind of be a an interesting resolution by the court as to how they would navigate this navigate this issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go to our next question, Raj. My husband and I got divorced about two years ago. The court ordered that I pay him child and spousal support. Since our proceedings, I have received a pay decrease from my company. How long would it take to change my support orders to pay less money? What do you think, Raj?
1: So, uh, this depends on a, on a couple of factors. So the typical way that a person goes about making a modification, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, is that uh, anytime you have a change in circumstances or um, you know, something, has, something has changed in your life that impacts your ability to pay support, execute custody, any of those things, you can go back to the court assuming the parties can't agree you can go back to the court and say that you want a formal change in the order because you either um, you know, can't be around as much or you would like to be around more and, or you know, you've made, you're making less money and you can't pay the amount of support that the court has ordered. Um, so if those changes are there, that's the way that you go to the court and you ask for those changes. Now, where do you go to court and how? It's the next part of that issue? <laughs> For child support, and I ran into this issue today, for child support, it depends on whether the Department of Child Support Services is enforcing the support orders. If they're doing that, um, especially here, specifically here in LA, and I presume it's the same in other places, there's a separate court specifically reserved to address financial issues related to child support. So if the Department of Child Support Services is enforcing, you have to go through that avenue and uh, seek a modification of, of child support. For spousal support, you can go back to that same court, same venue, and pursue a change there. But what ties the two situations together is that you have to show that something has changed. In this case, having a paid decrease from your company is garden variety, most obvious reason to show a change. And, or receive a change and potentially pay less in support. Um, and all that would require is, you know, the motion, uh, a declaration in support, um, an income and expense declaration with attachments of all of your now decreased pay stubs and, uh, a, for greater evidence, a copy of your tax returns. You put all those things together, you throw them into our good friend, the Distro master or the um, child support calculator, and it, it will give an idea as to what your change support amount would be.
0: Rush, well, explain to our listeners what um this Master is.
1: So, the legislature in the state of California wanted to remove the um, inconsistency that judges sometimes have when they're making support orders um, and prior you know prior to the initiation of this technology you know you pretty much you go into court it could be in whatever county you say well the judge I make this amount of money I can only pay this amount of support and uh, you know some people would feel like the orders that were made were not reflective of, of what the real need was or uh, overly charged one party to to pay for support so what the state legislature did is is created or give the authority to create a calculator software that takes into consideration all of the aspects of cost of living, um, your income, your uh, well your gross income, how much custodial time you spend, how much you give in 401k contributions, how much you give in um, healthcare contribution, uh, monies you earn if you have a if if you have your own business, monies you earn. Uh, you know, throughout the year, whether in ways or not, whether you earn bonuses, all of these types of things, all these um, variety of ways in which people uh, fund their lifestyle go into this calculation. And then based on that, uh, it spits out a number that is considered to be presumptively correct as to what an appropriate amount of support is. And uh, every court in the state of California uses it, um, it's almost become a crutch, in my opinion, as to what the uh, appropriate amount of support is. But um, anytime you're discussing financial issues, child support, spousal support, um, you're going to have to run this program to, give the, to tell the court what a guideline order would be, and then uh, based on that number and the inputs, the parties can sort of have an argument or have uh, you know testimony to the court about whether that number should be the enforced number or whether they they should be something else. Um, And so that's what the courts are always using. Um, When it comes to spousal support, though, um, there's going to be an additional layer that are called the Family Code 4320 factors. And these are a series of um, statutory inquiries that the court has to make in assessing what the sort of standard of living of of these spouses were during the time of marriage. And then based on uh, those findings plus the calculation, the court can make an order for spousal support. But, um, you know, you should hope that you have an attorney who's good at running this calculation or, or try and find one online yourself. There's plenty out there. And, you know, sort of get an idea for what your obligations might be.
0: Is DissoMaster the only uh, software program out there?
1: It's a, I, I call it DissoMaster. And when I say that, I generically refer to all the software programs. I think the two biggest are VisoMaster and x I feel like there's one more, but the name escapes at the moment, but um, uh, I sort of uh, use it as an umbrella term for the calculator software uh, that the court uses to determine child and spousal support.
0: And there are, there are a few, I believe... Um, uh, different uh, software companies, but Disselmaster by uh, West or Thomson Reuters is the uh, most popular one they have out there now. Yeah, yeah.
1: and you know yeah. Yeah. it's in all the courthouses. There's there is a station that a lot all the attorneys can go to, um, and sometimes the parties, but that all the attorneys can go to and run run the calculation in real time, and um, if any of the support numbers have changed, there's a printout that's there, every judge has it on their desktop and they can run the numbers while the parties are giving testimony. Um, it's a real critical part of family law here in the state of California and, um, you know, when, when a party is looking to hire an attorney, you want to ask that question of, you know, do they know how to run the software, do they know how the inputs impact that um, and do they know, you know, it, it it's very critical to the attorney's ability to give advice on these issues, and so, um, you know, parties want to make sure that they try and run a calculation on their own. You can look it up on the web. Um, I think the Department of Child Support Services has a sort of rudimentary of version of this that parties can do to gauge what their obligations might be. And then, if you ever go to an attorney, you know, you can you can run a pretty simple calculation, Not a lot of, not a lot of expenditure. So, um, it's a really important and critical fact in family law and. Uh, um, it's
0: something that we use every day. You know, Raj, yesterday we had a case um in downtown Los Angeles and yes. the whistle master numbers were significantly different between what we wanted and what the other side wanted. I think the mm-hmm. um the differences the differences were about four thousand dollars per month. Right. Well
1: they well, they were actually even bigger than that. Um, from you know, from some of the things that council told me is that they they ran a modified, in their opinion, modified calculation that reduced the number even more. Um, they told me they ran a calculation that was, I think, almost fifteen thousand dollars different than what ours ours like their max number versus our minimum number. So, um, mm-hmm. like any like any technology, it, you know, it's you can play with it. Um, to sort of generate the results you want. you know, There's a saying about statistics, you can make them say what you want them to say. And for someone who's knowledgeable about the software, they can, they can generate a result that is more in their favor. And sometimes um, it's useful because uh, uh, you know, they show that number to the opposing side and they get scared. And um, if you don't know how to battle those numbers, then it can, it can force you into a negotiation position that's um, maybe not Maybe not the best.
0: So this calculation and using the distal master is not the be-all, end-all. You have to know what you're doing with no. respect to in- inputting information, etc.
1: Well, not only that, um, it's not a be-all, end-all for the court. I mean, the statute only says that it is
0: presumed to be
1: correct. Um, you can offer evidence to the contrary. You know, one of the exceptions... Um, that I often use, uh, is that the support, the guideline number when viewed in, um, contrast to, you know, sort of the obligor's income and their expenses for, for their lifestyle, uh, within reason, um, would make it impossible for them to meet their general necessities of life, you know, food, shelter, clothing, housing, um. And I've, you know, I've I've had some success on that issue. We're getting slight modifications so that um, um, the guideline isn't the, the exact order. But um, uh, you know, like you said, Vince, you know, you have to know how to run the numbers, and then um, sort of after that's done, you also have to know how to argue the numbers to make sure that the order is not the order is reflective of your actual situation. So um, it's a it's a big time process here. In California um, and in LA specifically, there's a whole building dedicated to to this issue. So
0: um, it's critical. You know what I found surprising about yesterday's hearing, and and that was our opposing attorney is a fine <laughs> attorney. She's she's yes. very knowledgeable. Um, yes. But she was trying to argue to the judge that our client's child support should be based upon income that he is probably, not definitely, but probably going to be making as of September 1st, 2016. So he's not, he hasn't even started earning this money, and she, right. with a very straight face, argued to the judge that, you know, um, he should start paying child support retroactively, by the way, to the filing. Yeah. Date right. uh, based upon his new income. And right. the judge told her, you know, come on. I mean, I am not going to, first of all, make Mr. Davis's and Mr. Matani's client pay you child support on numbers that he's not even making yet. Right. And secondly, I'm not going to make it retroactive, you know, to the date when you file. So she was trying to get the judge to order child support being paid on numbers that our client's not even making. And, you know, I know she knows the law, Mm -hmm. but she was still making that argument. If you are in court and you don't object to something like that, the judge might have ordered that. To be honest with you, I don't think this judge would have. But some right. judges may, may order that if you don't have the argument against it.
1: Well, the, I mean, the same so thing happened, happened to me today. Same, the, the statute says that um, the court has discretion to uh, preserve retroactivity, and, and for people who don't know what we're talking about, um, Whenever there's a motion for modification of, of any support order, um, you're not necessarily going to get a hearing at the exact moment that your circumstances change. You're likely going to keep paying whatever the order is and get a hearing 30 to 60 days from, from, when, uh, from when you filed. So the court, in consideration of that fact, reserves a right to say that when we actually do make an order, we can make it retroactive to the day you filed so that, you know, the the term when these circumstances change is reflective in any new order, um, and and that's that's the rule. You can potentially reserve back to that date, and you know, I think opposing counsel yesterday thought that by simply stating that that she could maybe achieve that result, and had the judge not maybe even paying attention to the minutia or just, just sort of was having a. Um, having a different, a special kind of day that she might have won on that issue, but um, you know, I think we had a we had a very smart judicial officer who understood um, based on our timely filed pleadings that you know any of the changes aren't going to take effect until you know the new circum- the new money is actually earned, and that any order for support won't be won't be backdated to a time when the money wasn't actually earned. So, um, you know, litigants need to be need to be aware that um, you know they have to raise those issues because if the judicial officer isn't aware, I think they'll very instinctually just reserve to the filing date. Um, but if you can make an argument, uh, intelligent argument to the contrary, that some other date should be used, um, they're they're inclined to listen to
0: You know, it's important. A lot of people think that you don't have to have any litigation skills when you're doing this type of hearing that the judge should know the family law and that, um, you know, there's really not, there's no need to have an attorney and right. You know, unfortunately that's not correct. Um, yes, everyone knows what the law is, but very few circumstances are black and white and, uh, there's always exceptions that can be successfully argued in the law, and a good attorney is able to do that.
1: Well, I'll I'll uh I'll give the give our listeners an example of what happened to me today, and and you know how I think having an attorney benefited our client. Um, you know I was in a I was in a child support hearing uh, at our local child support uh, court, CCW here in LA, and um, you know by the local rules, whenever this financial issue is presented, you know, the opposing side is supposed to present uh, uh, a recent income and expense declaration, uh, their last two months' worth of pay stubs, a copy of their last two years' tax returns, and any loan applications that they've made in the last two years which, uh, in which you would you know, fill in how much you're receiving in income. And uh, you know, we complied with this. In fact, we presented it early. We complied with this. Opposing party... Filled out uh, you know a, a somewhat laughable uh, income and expense declaration that was essentially blank um, made no attachments, nothing and you know we went in there to the to the child support uh,
0: sort of triage
1: uh, office, and you know you had that discussion with that attorney and, and they were ready to make an order against our client and i you know I specifically objected that the opposing party hasn't complied with the rule, That we don't have the information necessary to make any kind of effective order, and that this matter needs to be, you know, put off or continued so that we have the information that we uh, we need to properly make an order. And um, you know, the minute I brought that up, which I don't think my client would have understood to do without me, the minute I brought that up, the child support attorney said, "That's completely true. Let's go put this on the record, and we'll get you the continuance date." and you know, I, saved, I was able to save our client time, money, uh, interest, and uh, even get retroactivity uh, to today's date and not the, not the filing date. So um, it's critical that people, people either seek the representation of an attorney for an issue like this or, or uh, at least inquire and, uh, you know, figure out what their options are.
0: You know, Rush, this reminds me of a story, um, true story, client comes to me, and um, what had happened was a, a couple decided to get divorced. They didn't want to involve any attorneys. Interestingly enough, it was the husband who didn't want to involve attorneys, um, and they did their own divorce through a uh, paralegal service. Well, there was one main particular asset. It was the family home, and the judgment said something kind of vague and ambiguous as to the division of the family home and how much someone would get from the sale of that home. Now this is mm-hmm. before family, this was before property prices had plummeted, but <laughs> okay. they got divorced and when the house was sold, which was several years later, Um. The judgment was written so that the wife was only going to get half of the house sold based upon the value of the property at the time of the divorce. And the house went up $300,000 from the time of the divorce till the time it was sold, like a couple of years later. And... um, the woman had gone to court, excuse me, had gone to her husband and said, well, you know, I want half of the 600000 of the house, not half of the 300000 of the house. And he says, oh, no, it says right here in the judgment that you only get half of the house at the time of the, of the divorce, which the value was 300000 Well, she came to me and she says, you know, I'm going to lose out on $150,000. Um, would you go to court and try to change this? And I said, Yes, I can go to court and I can try to change it, but I don't think we're going to be successful. You mm-hmm. know, because several years has gone by and she says, Well I didn't intend that and you know, uh you know, certain explanations he was giving and he defrauded right. me, he me and you know, which was probably true. We went to court and the judge ruled against us. Said no, that the judgment was very clear, and there was apparently quid pro quo, and that um, she was going to get half of the three hundred thousand, not half of the six hundred thousand. And what ended up happening is she saved a penny, but lost a dollar because she didn't even get the judgment or the settlement agreement reviewed by an attorney, so that an attorney could explain it to her. You know. In a lot of cases, people don't want to hire attorneys because attorneys can be expensive. But what you can do every time that you do something major in the case, you can bring it to an attorney to have it reviewed. And you might have to pay two, $300, maybe more, to have that reviewed. But had the woman paid even $1,000, she wouldn't have lost $150,000 in the long run. So I think people should, you know, if, if they don't want to hire attorneys, I, you know, I understand that. a lot of people are com- uncomfortable hiring attorneys, but hire an attorney at a, every major step to try to uh, review documents for you so they can explain the possible pitfalls in these, you know, in these situations. What do you think about that?
1: Well, you know, that, uh, that leads me down the path to sort of what people uh, misperceive as the way to get an attorney to represent you. I think a lot of people have the um, old school understanding that it takes thousands of dollars, a big retainer, and that's the only way you can get an attorney to help you. And that's that's actually not the case. Um, The state bar has created all of these new avenues for for people to get representation and not sort of lose their house. Um, and we do that here at our office. You know, we do um, paid consultation. If you want something more in depth than our, our traditional, um, you know, hour consultation, we do that for a small fee. Um, we also provide what's called limited scope representation, where you could hire us, like Vince is saying. You know, if you want an attorney job at each stage, but you don't want to be committed to them for the entire amount, you know, you can hire us an attorney on limited scope to handle a very narrow issue handle a specific day at court, and then, you know, go back to being self-represented. And uh, so you can do that on limited scope. You can do, uh, have an attorney review it for um, unbundled services just to do the document preparation or to write up all of your pleadings and make sure that, you know, in the event that you can't argue the case, that at least the court sees um, all of your
0: positions
1: and that they're legally supported. So, um, you know, there's lots of ways for people to make sure, and in the example that you said stated, you know, say, uh, save a, you know, try to save a penny but lost a dollar. You know, she could have hired somebody for probably a nominal fee to go over that um, settlement agreement, and you know, could have anticipated that these other issues might arise, and uh, you know, wouldn't have had to had to go through the stress of trying to have the court reconsider that agreement and. And uh, you know get her pro- something that she was probably be properly entitled
0: to. Raj, one of our current divorce clients came to me about four years ago, when she you know there wasn't it wasn't a divorce going on, and she came to me, um, and she had a copy of a post nuptial agreement. Now, a post-nuptial okay. agreement is an, ag- is an agreement that parties sign after they get married in case they get divorced. Right. And she was having troubles in her marriage. There were some allegations of infidelity by the uh, husband, and she said their marriage was rocky. But, you know, he was the, a very high-income earner, and he wanted her to sign this post-nuptial agreement, uh, you know, but they were still together. She was going to sign it. In fact, the copy she brought me she had already signed. Oh, and wow. And the only reason why she came to me she spent three hundred and fifty dollars was to get my opinion that this was a good idea and this was something that she should sign. Now, she only came to me because the people in her office where she had been talking about this. Had read the agreement and told her not to sign it, and that she, and that uh, she should go consult with an attorney. So, in fact, one of her office, her co-employee, found me only because I was in the area, area and she came to me, and I read through the agreement, and uh, I basically, you know, told her. This was, in my opinion, economically, the worst thing that she could do. (laughs) And I explained in about 30 minutes why. Her response to me was, you know, even if I sign this, I don't think my husband would actually stick to this and he would help me out if we get divorced. Wow. And I, I, I was kind of flabbergasted, and I said, well, do you trust your ex-husband? She said, no, not at all. I said, well, why, <laughs> why do you think he, he wouldn't, you know, do what this agreement says? Well, we've known each other for years, and I don't think he would take advantage of me. And I said, okay, you know, um, who am I to get involved with, you know, someone's assertion of their current spouse, who they've been together with right. years, through the years, and I've never met the spouse, so I don't know know what type of guy he is. Anyway, she thanked me. She paid me the $350. She thanked me, and she left. About a year and a half later, she calls me up, and she says, "Um, basically, my husband is leaving me, and uh, he's filed for divorce, and I want you to handle it. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I'll handle it. But you know, that prenuptial you signed—that's going to be a big problem. She came in. She brought in. She brought the divorce papers, and she also brought in the prenuptial agreement. She had never signed. She never gave it to him. So she she didn't tear it up, but she didn't. She never gave it to him. She hid it, and um, so she basically was in the position because he had never signed it. Uh, was you know they didn't have a prenuptial agreement right well sure well, sure enough he um the husband was wanting to divorce her and he, he was the higher income earner he wanted her to pay her own attorney's fees he wanted her he didn't want to pay her any spousal support and he didn't want to pay he didn't want to split his uh retirement accounts all oh, the that's things kind of that she a position, position He was doing all the things that she said he wouldn't do a year and a half ago. Wow. Wow. So they go through the divorce. It's kind of a contentious divorce. But, of course, she gets spousal support. She gets half the pension, you know. And now she's, I won't say living comfortably, but she's not in, you Mm -hmm. know, living in poverty. Uh, because he, you know, wanted to divorce her. Wow. All I, I of think so, that, uh, I, all of that, because she had the foresight to spend the three hundred and fifty dollars to come consult with me. So, and and that's the I think that's part of the
1: reason why that provision is there in the statute for uh, specifically for postnuptial agreements for parties to have the opportunity to review it. Um, you know, you can respect a person's good intentions all all you want, but, um, you know, there's probably a reason why the marriage is rocky. There's probably a reason why it ended up in divorce. And the minute that, and we, you know, Vince, you and I, we see this every day, the minute that divorce happens, uh, the sort of uh, collaborative attitude tends to disappear, and people, uh, you know, sort of want what they want despite what the law says. And so sort of at at every point, like in this case, where they had someone to review their post-nuptial agreement. And then throughout the life of a case, you know, a, a divorce case can, can be pretty long and be pretty taxing. So the life of the case, it's useful to get a set of fresh eyes, uh, a legal opinion, and make sure that sort of, you know, the case is chugging along in an appropriate way. So um, I think that was that's
0: uh, uh, a
1: good story for our our listeners to hear about sort of how the winding road of divorce can lead to a lot of unexpected destinations.
0: Raj, let's move to our next question. What does our next question say? Our next question
1: is somewhere we'll all have to fill it up as well. Ah, here it is. Okay. (laughs) Um, I got it. I got it. Um, uh, The next question is my husband is threatening to divorce me. If I travel out of the country and have no intentions to come back to the USA, uh, would I have to divorce him still? Huh. This, is a, this is an interesting question. Um, you know, my initial reaction to it, then is that um, if he's planning on leaving the USA and never coming back, he still needs to resolve her interests and issues here in the US. So, um, you know, in the event that he threatens to divorce, he actually chooses to divorce her or she uh, chooses to get divorced, um, you know, I would suggest that those be taken care of ASAP before she moves, um, have that resolved and not have this lingering specter over your head. Uh, Because if one side decides to initiate the divorce, you're going to have some big service issues. And jurisdiction issues, and um, I think I, I think it would be advisable to sort of resolve it and not uh, and not leave it unsettled.
0: What are your thoughts? Uh, you're probably right, but it sounds like she doesn't want to get divorced, and she sounds like, the question sounds like, well, if I move away, can he not get divorced from me? And the answer to that question no, he is, that. yeah. Yeah, he, whether you move or not, he can still get divorced. Correct. And if you do move away and don't come back, it will make it easier for him to get divorced, in my opinion.
1: Well, well, it could present a few. It it presents a really interesting issue that I'm actually dealing with at the moment as well for one of our clients is, you know, when a party is not a critical part of the court making a decision is they have to have jurisdiction over the case. um, It's a constitutional issue. Uh, And so the way for the court to do that is you have to show the moving party has to show the court that, hey, I presented these documents to the other side. The way you do that is a proof of service. Typically, that's not an issue if the person lives in the U.S. You know their address, you know where they work, you hire a process server and they go and serve the documents. Or, um, you know, if the parties are amicable, you can send what's called a notice of acknowledgement, and they can sign off that they received the papers. Um, but when someone's out of the country, and you don't know where they are, um, you sort of uh, get into this new issue of how are you going to present them to documents, or if you don't know where they might be, uh, you have to do a process called what's what's called service by publication, um, and that sort of you know that makes the that's an additional step. It's not too hard, but it's an additional step, delays the case, and um, uh, could come back to present a problem for the for the court if it's not done correctly. So, um, even if she doesn't want to get divorced, um, if she leaves and he initiates, a divorce will eventually happen, uh, which is why I would probably advise her that, uh, you know, resolve it and then move to wherever
0: you want to move to. That would be the best advice. Yeah, that would be the best advice. Right, right. Or she could, re- uh, she could retain a lawyer and go ahead and move now and let the lawyer handle divorce while she's living you know, outside right. the country.
1: Right. So yeah, you can have the. There are ways that uh, once a lawyer is hired, then service on the lawyer would be appropriate, and and the lawyer can handle it. You can be out of the country and just uh, sort of uh, telecommute with your uh, with your attorney.
0: Very good. We're running out of time, uh, Raj. What's our next question?
1: Well, actually, it's the perfect question I think to to lead us to our close um, for. Those people who are part of our newsletter, if you subscribe to our to our broadcast, um, you'll get a letter every month saying one of the subjects that we're going to talk about. Um, this week, I think, posed the question about, uh, sort of to paraphrase, how long is child support effective, or do you have to keep paying child support for your child even past a certain age or, or, or event? Um, and the question that specifically posed to us here is, one of my children is turning 18 next month. They are only a junior in high school. How can I ensure to receive child support until he is out of high school? So this is a a very specific issue that's governed by Family Code Section uh, 3900, um, and more specifically, Family Code Section 3901, uh, Parts A and D. Uh, And I'll read this this section for our, our listeners. The statute reads, The duty of support imposed by this section continues to an unmarried child who has attained the age of 18 years, is a full-time high school student, and who is not self-supporting until the time the child completes the 12th grade or attains the age of 19 years, whichever occurs first. Um, Nothing in this section limits a parent's ability to agree to provide additional support or the court's power to inquire whether an agreement to provide additional support has been made. You know, those are the. We can break down the statute a little, a little bit. But um, what it means for this client is that until the, even if a child is past the age of 18, but hasn't graduated high school, they're going to continue to have to pay support until they, uh, until they graduate high school. The only cutoff for that would be is if they're past the age of 19 and still in high school. So one of the two has to happen. Either they have to turn 19 or they have to finish the 12th grade, and then that's when support would end. Um, You know, a lot of times people bring up the issue, well, what about uh, college and things of that nature? Parties can make their own separate agreement regarding payment for college or tuition and things like that, um, but that wouldn't be specifically enumerated in a child support order. Child support is... Simply designated for one party to the other to get the kid through high school. After that, they're now they're now an adult in the eyes of the law, and if you want to make some sort of separate arrangements for that issue, that would be fine. But um, uh, you know, the court's not going to necessarily compel one party to pay the other's tuition. So, um, for our our caller here, she's gonna the support would last... Uh, for a child who's turning 18 in the next month, but only a junior, the support would last till that child is, is through with high school. By statute.
0: No way to get it at uh, the age of 18, Raj? Well,
1: there is one special exception. Um, there's one special exception that. Uh, um, if a child is past the age of eighteen or, or nineteen but they have some sort of special needs or um, uh, some sort of medical issue that still requires support um, then uh, then the court can still continue to make an order but you would have to have a special hearing on that issue and then um, and then it would be then it would the court would make a decision on it
0: so you can go. Past the age of 18,
1: you can well in this case by the statute as well. You can go past the age of 18, all the way up to age 19, as long as the child is still in high school. Um, but when the minute one of those events happen first, so once the child graduates high school or turns 19, support is over.
0: What if the child is 20 and autistic?
1: Then that that's a. Uh, Potential case where the court could continue to enforce support if, if it's shown that the child cannot be self-supporting or uh, doesn't have the capacity to become self-supporting. So then, potentially, a support order could
0: could continue. Under what code section would that come under? Do you think?
1: Uh, it's it's designated by case law, if I'm not mistaken. But um, uh, family uh, child support. Uh, is generally uh, uh, governed by Family Code Section 3900 and its uh, subsequent subparts, and Family Code I think 4050 and its subparts. So uh, between those two and some case law, it it wouldn't be a hard argument to show the court that you know this child still still has needs that are uh, that cannot be met uh, without the uh, supplement of child support.
0: Okay, Raj, we have about two and a half minutes left. Uh, let's talk about uh, what we're going to talk about on our next show. You know, we have uh, Catherine McWillie coming back, but I think that's going to oh, be the great. last week in July. Last week in July, and we're going to be talking about the pros and cons of. Uh, having judge trials versus having jury trials. Raj, did you know that in some jurisdictions, in family law cases, you're allowed to have a jury? I did
1: not know that, because I don't think you can do that in California. Or maybe oh,
0: you, can you, cannot, do California. No, you yeah. cannot do it in California. No, you cannot do it in California. California family law cases, including divorces, are only by way of judge trial. Um, and you know Catherine, as an expert, is involved in cases internationally as well as all over the United States, and she wants to talk about the pros and cons of judge versus jury violence, uh, in family law matters. And we're go- we're going to have her on the show the last week in July. But next week, the next week, Raj, what uh, what topic would you like to talk top- talk about?
1: Um,
0: well, we're definitely
1: going to take. Uh... Client questions and uh, PNC questions, and uh, we would love to have a live caller and, and answer your questions live on the air. So please uh, call our call our show or call our office, and we'd be happy to put you down. But um, you know what? We haven't touched um, in a little in a little while is property division. So I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll come up with a few specific items of property or some scenarios, and we'll we'll go through how the court might decide on those.
0: That's a very good idea, Raj, because we don't talk a lot about property. We talk a lot about custody, visitation, child support, spousal support. So I think it's time to turn our, turn our attentions for maybe a show or two towards property. So that's what we'll plan on talking yeah. about. Raj, I want to thank you, for, thank you again for joining me this evening and co-hosting uh, our show, uh, the Divorce and Family Law Talk radio show. And we'll see you next week on the radio live, Raj. Thank you. Good night. Looking forward to it.